Father, we come before you and we thank you for any good news that comes out about this COVID-19 and the youth which are out there that can return to school. I pray that the politics would just be set to the side and the kids would be able to meet back together in the classrooms and that you would bring encouragement to those who are depressed and those who seem to be in a state of lethargy. I pray that you would restore them, Lord, and these schools would open. I pray also for those who are in Texas and across the United States who are suffering under this freeze, that you would provide for them what is necessary, the food and the plumbers to fix the pipes and those who work in underground utilities, all of those things that are necessary for a normal life. I pray that you would provide them and bring things back to a a steady state. And for your word, Lord, I would ask that you would bless your word as it goes forth. May it have its desired effect on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early 1900s, there was this organization that was developed. It was called the Boy Scouts of America. And the Boy Scouts of America, if you signed up for that organization, you would receive a publication, a magazine. You guys know what a magazine is? We don't have those so much anymore. But you would receive this magazine called Boy's Life. And in Boy's Life, there would be articles that would pertain to boys. And they would have articles that would be for different age groups like 6 to 10 and 11 to 16. And then the older ones that would go to like age 18. And there was this one article in October of 1954 that dealt with this one subject, the Remora Runner. The Remora Runner, this young boy, this article is about this young boy who joined the cross-country team. And when he joined the cross-country team, his brother, who was previous to him, was a star athlete in the cross-country event. And he would run and he just got all kinds of medals. But the younger brother was not so motivated as the older brother. And he decided to become what was termed by the coach a Remora Runner. And a Remora runner is somebody who finds somebody who is pretty good at running and then you come behind them and you draft behind them. Just like bicycles, if you see a a trail of bicycles going down the road, the person who is second and third in line, they benefit from the lack of wind and they're able to push forward without expending as much energy. And so this young man, he didn't really desire to win everything, but he wanted to get more points for his team. And so he became this runner that would fall in behind the better runners and they'd get more points. He didn't want to fall all the way behind, but he was just kind of being a mediocre runner. And then somewhat humorously, the coach at the end of the run came up to him and said, you are a Remora runner. Now, what exactly is a Remora? A Remora is a fish. And a Remora fish, it's strange looking. It attaches itself to a host, which is usually a shark, a whale, or even a large manta ray. And depending on the size of the Remora fish, even dozens can end up being attached to the bottom side, normally the bottom side, sometimes on the top side, of a shark or a whale or even a manta ray. I have seen video of these Remora fish almost completely covering a manta ray. And they do this by the use of a modified dorsal fin that's on top of their heads and it acts like a suction cup. And they go right up underneath and they put that thing on the bottom side of the host and they hang on for the ride. The host does all the work Uh, The pulling of the remoras through the water, the obtaining of food, like if a shark attacks and the remora comes down and he picks up the scraps, and when he's all done feeding, he attaches himself to the shark or the host again, and the host even offers a measure of protection, uh, protection from the elements, protection from those who might be out there that would seek their lives, and while a remora fish might not be directly involved in the demise of the host, it is always a hindrance. It zaps the energy and it may even cause injury because of the, the weight of the remora fishes. It, it prevents the shark or the host from going through the water more easily. So the origin of this word remora comes from the Latin meaning of hindrance or delay. You have re in remora, which is going back or backwards or again. And then you have mora, which is delay, obstacle, or pause. 
And what this fish does is, like I said, puts a weight on the host. What a remora runner does, it always is psychologically damaging to the runner who is the adept runner, who gets out there in front. Now, in relating this to the gospel, or excuse me, to the letter of the Galatians, or written to the Galatians by Paul, there was this group, which I have already told you about, the Judaizers. They would not set out on their own and be like a fish in the sea on their own. They would always attach themselves to another person's ministry. They would be Remora ministers. They would come in and they'd take advantage of everything that had been done, everything that had been set up, and then they would add to it, like I said last week, the gospel, the gospel of works, where we know that the gospel for us, the true gospel is Jesus Christ and nothing added to him. And so these Judaizers, they were never uh, the hosts of the gospel. They never began their own work. They would go into churches and ruin them. They were a parasite, an evil, a hindrance, a burden to Paul, the churches in Galatia, and the work of the gospel. And they would derive personal benefit attaching themselves to the church. And problems arose. The gospel was changed, and it caused Paul to be disappointed and angry. Now, these men were just like those mentioned in Jude chapter 4, excuse me, Jude chapter 1, verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. He knew that these impostors had cut in on the Galatians and changed the gospel into no gospel at all. One version of the Bible talks about this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, you were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? And a remora fish will do that. It, it becomes so weighty on the host. If there's enough of them, it changed the action of the host itself. And he goes on. Paul is so disappointed and so angry, as I read last week. And verse 6 says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. <clears throat> Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now hopefully you remembered that I put it into the vernacular of our day. If we were to say something like this, we would end up telling the person, I wish that you would go to hell, is what Paul is saying here. I wish that they would be eternally condemned. If you give somebody a different gospel, it means they run the risk of being eternally condemned. And so Paul wishes what they wish for other people upon them, upon those who are Judaizers. And he repeats it twice. Now, why is Paul so upset to use such strong language? Because others, like I said, will be condemned if they listen to him. What if an angel materialized and spoke a new revelation? I mean, right here in the midst of our meeting, what if just heaven opened up and all of a sudden an angel was there bright and shining and all of us fell down and he gives us a different gospel? We are not supposed to believe that gospel if it is different than the one that is taught to us in the scripture and just keep in mind that salvation is found in none other than in the name of jesus christ the messiah in acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved and that is it, it is by his name it is not by any works that we could do <clears throat> now paul's calling here paul is ticked he's angry he's fuming He's not trying to win friends or influence enemies. In verse 10, uh, by the way, from verse 10 to verse 16, I think it's 12 times he uses the first person singular, I. So he starts to address the message about himself to the Galatians. He says, am I now trying to win approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, more than likely a reaction to what might have been said to the Galatians that Paul made up the gospel, and that was not true. Paul did not make up this gospel. What he's saying here is he was not taught by the apostles. He was not taught by other disciples of Jesus Christ. He got this revelation directly from Jesus himself. And Paul reminds the Galatians that he too, just like the Judaizers, came from Judaism. Because remember, I told you when we were in Second Corinthians that the Jews, they would write these letters, the chief priests would write the letters for these Jews and send them out, and that would be their authority under which they would stand. And so if they entered a synagogue, they were to receive the letter from the chief priests that were in Jerusalem, and then they could do whatever it is they wanted to do. Paul goes on in verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my previous life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So he has a testimony. He begins to talk about this testimony to lay the groundwork for why he is telling them what he's telling them. Remember, the Judaizer said, we have this authority. Paul says, well, I have this authority too. Now, remember, Paul, he was not just a Jew. He was a Greek. He was a Greek citizen, which afforded him certain privileges. Like, for instance, when they were going to start beating him, he goes, are you really going to beat a Roman citizen? And they got all nervous because they were never supposed to beat a Roman citizen unless there was some type of court trial that they went through. But they were suspecting that he was not a Greek citizen, and therefore they could just beat him and punish him for whatever they did. <clears throat> but that was not the case with Paul. Now, with Paul, this idea of having a testimony, all of us have a testimony. Now, some might say, well, I went down a really bad road and I was doing all kinds of bad things. I told you before that uh, I know a bank robber. And the bank robber, he turned his life around. He was only the getaway car. Uh, and he had done it twice, but he was still uh, under conviction for this. He was going to be thrown in jail, and God had mercy on him, brought him out, and he's a believer today, and he's doing great. But maybe you have a testimony like that. Maybe you were a bank robber, or maybe you were just a pilferer at the local store. I can remember as kids going into some stores with my friends, and my friends would decide they wanted to steal some candy. Now, candy back then was one cent or two cents. And there were also these party poppers that you could get. I don't know if you remember those, a little cup-like thing. On, and they'd have the stem underneath, and you'd pop them like that. And it, it was kind of like a firecracker, but there was no explosive material in it. And we'd go into these stores, and my friend, he would come out with four or five of these party poppers. And his pockets would be laden with this penny candy and a... At that age, I knew, and I was probably only seven or eight, and I knew that that, by the way, we'd get on our bikes and ride into town at seven or eight, and nobody would be around. And my parents would say, don't come home until it's dark. And so that's, that's what we'd do. And we'd, we could get into trouble. And fortunately, we missed a lot of the trouble that was there. And I could have said, well, I was a thief. Because I think I did it once or twice just because everyone else was doing it, kind of like the lemmings going over the cliff type of thing. And so <clears throat> that's what happens. Maybe you have a testimony. Maybe you went to prison. Maybe you got involved in drugs or some other type of nefarious activity. And that's our testimony. But the person who says, well, you know, I never really did much that was wrong. And I feel maybe I need to get a testimony. No, you don't need to get a testimony. You don't need to go out and do something where you can say, well, God used me in this because I fell off, you know, into this crime syndicate. You don't have to do any of that. It's really the grace of God that preserves somebody. And it's wonderful to be able to point to somebody. You've been a Christian all your life. Yes. You've never stolen anything. Well, maybe a pencil once, you know, and that's their testament. It's great. God has preserved them and enabled them to be used later on in life. So not everybody needs that type of testimony. And even Paul's testimony was great. 
He went to the universities, or he went to a university, Tarsus, and he was schooled under Gamaliel. We know this from the book of Acts. I'll probably read it in a moment here. And Gamaliel was considered like the preeminent teacher in Judaism. And Paul was under him. So at about age 16, he would have gone and listened to him teach. And he he was well-versed in the day, not only in Greek culture, but also in Judaism. And he knew it. And we know that Scripture says that he excelled beyond his peers. And that's what verse 14, again, I'll read it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And so that was his testimony and he's using this to buttress against the argument that the Judaizers they have a testimony, they've been places, they know people, they have letters and he's saying well I have all of that as well and even more so. But what does God want us to know from this section that goes from verses 10 through 16? He wants us to know that the giving of the true gospel will not win friends. Now, and also, giving of the true gospel will be pleasing to Christ. And so which do you want? Do you want friends or do you want to be pleasing to Christ? And apparently the Galatian churches, they wanted to just stick with the bandwagon theology. Just let's all go in this direction let's all buy into this and and paul is just beset he he says why are you guys doing this if you've ever tried to give the gospel to somebody you're going to get one of two reactions it really is a dividing line the sword of the spirit it divides joints and marrow soul and spirit it discerns the intent of the heart And if you bring out the gospel, so to speak, if you pull that sword out of its sheath and you wave it around and you point it at somebody, it is going to cause a reaction. And the reaction is either going to be, I want more of this. What is it? Or it's going to be, do not talk to me about your Christ. I don't want to know anything more about it. And this is the gospel that Paul was bringing. And we know that even on Mars Hill in Athens, which again, I'll probably read in a moment, at the Areopagus. Uh, That's where Paul went and he would debate with the philosophers of the day. When he would do so, they, they were divided half and half. Some wanted to hear more on it. Some said that this is ridiculous. Why are you even teaching about this? But what is he teaching about exactly? It's the gospel. And we need to be reminded exactly what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel chapter this is the resurrection chapter in the new testament where it's explained to us in first corinthians chapter 15 in verse 3 he explains the gospel for what i received i passed on to you as of first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures okay that is the gospel But it doesn't just end there. If you say that to somebody without an explanation, they will not know what you're talking about. You need to make sure that you are able to explain, well, why did Jesus have to die for our sins? And the Old Testament, it foreshadowed the fact that Jesus would die for our sins. You can find Jesus on almost every page in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, The New Testament is concealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament is revealed. And you have to be able to explain that to them. You have to know Romans 10, 9, and 10 and Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. You need to know what it is and explain to someone what repentance means and how we need to turn from our sin. So we need to be able to elaborate on this gospel. But when was the last time you went to somebody and said, Would you like to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? When was the last time that you did that? And see, that's what God is telling us we need to do. If we don't become active in doing that, if we just... Have you ever heard the the phrase, the colloquialism, a rolling stone gathers no moss? If you're part of the rock of Jesus Christ, his church, and you're just stationary, you're gathering a lot of moss. You know, sheep, uh, you look at sheep, they like to feed 
They like the green pastures. They like to get fat and woolly. They like to just lay down and chew the cud, so to speak. And we get comfortable doing that. And we don't like wolves. We don't like standing up. Have you ever seen a sheep stand up to a wolf? Not too often. And you want to make sure that you are standing up and proclaiming the gospel and giving people the opportunity to accept Christ. So going on with this, we know that Paul was not only a Jew, but he was also a Greek citizen. In Acts chapter 22, verse 2 and 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, of Cilicia, but brought up in the city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So again, he's giving his credentials of where he had come from. And I talked about he attended maybe the greatest university or one of those universities at the time. And there were great universities like in Tarsus and Alexandria and Athens. That's where you would go if you wanted to become educated. They would be the equivalent today of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Oxford. Oxford. That's where Paul went. So he was like the top rung in academia. He knew what he was talking about. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so Paul could go to, as I was speaking before, the Areopagus, the Hill of Ares is what it's called. And it's an outcropping of rock. And it's probably 40 to 50 feet tall, maybe 60 feet tall. And it's about the size of a small city block. And people would go up onto this rock outcropping. Nothing really grew up there, maybe a couple of trees. And they would sit down and they would debate all day long. And this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 all the way through 21. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greeted or greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day to day with those who happened to be there. So he went right into the marketplace. It'd be like you going to Target. You go to Target and say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you? Is that mask working for you? No, not so much. Hey, would you like to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, you know, you think, of, that's weird. You know, somebody coming up in the middle of when you're shopping, and you use a little more finesse. You know, you don't just... Hit him upside the head with a baseball bat, that type of thing. But you want to make sure that you were open to sharing the gospel, to engaging somebody. In verse 18, it says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, remember the Epicurean uh, believers or the practice practitioners, they said, indulge in anything. If it makes you feel good, it's all good. And Stoics, you know, being very Stoic, that's where you place your hands inside both of your sleeves and you stand back a little bit and you don't say too much and you deprive yourself of many of the pleasures of this life so you had the epicureans and the stoics they're on opposite sides of the fence these philosophers began to dispute with him some of them asked what is this babbler trying to say others remarked he seems to be advocating for foreign gods they said this because paul was preaching the good news about jesus and the resurrection Then they looked at him, or they took him, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So he's walking along with the philosophers of the day at the preeminent place, engaging them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be like going to Hale, uh, Hale. It'd be like going to Harvard or Yale, not Hale, and or going to Princeton or wherever college you or university you might go to and sitting down with the professors and saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You prepared for that? Well, what about just your high school or what about your junior high school if you had kids or grandkids being able to do that? <clears throat> I once went with my daughter to intercede for my granddaughter who was being taught how to be a Muslim in public school. This was up in San Marcos. And I sat down with the teacher and I sat down with the principal and it didn't go well. Uh, they, They wouldn't be convinced that you can teach someone how to be a Muslim, but you should not or should also teach them how to be a Christian, but they weren't into that. They were just following the curriculum that was given to them by the state of California. And this is the way things are. And at one point I just said, okay, we're done. 
And, and I let them know how unfair it was. But we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to go into the schools. We're supposed to go into the public square. We're supposed to stand up, just like Paul, at the Areopagus and proclaim what the gospel is and what right and wrong is and not fear. Because people will come back and say, what are you a babbler trying to say? You're completely incorrect of what we believe or against what we believe. And you need to just kind of remain silent or just go away is what they were basically saying here with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And then they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And for those who are perishing, the gospel of Christ is a strange idea. And we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so they thought that maybe Paul just had another of the latest ideas. But he's making the point that if the Judaizers who they were listening to were qualified to speak, he was even more qualified. Remember, studied under Gamaliel, went to a great university, and then he was able to hold his own with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And he makes this case, but then he goes on to say, but in verse 15, when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So from this point, Paul is making the case that his gospel was a revelation. That's what he goes into. It was not taught him by others, the apostles or the disciples. Now, he does make this point in verse 15 again, that God who set him apart from birth. When were we called to salvation? It's not just from our birth. It is actually from the foundations of the earth is when we're called. And this is the doctrine of election. Now, the doctrine of election is, before we ever existed, God said, you are going to be saved. And we look at that and we think, well, if he determined I'm going to be saved, what role do I have in it? And this is where you get into the debate of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism says, you have no choice. You have to get saved, and you won't be able to resist, and that's the end of the story. Just get used to it and get comfortable. And the Arminius would say, no, that's not the way it is. You have to choose, and if you don't choose, you're no way going to be saved. And it's like they're missing the point. I'm neither one. I believe that God elected us, and we get to choose. I'm right in the middle with that. Why am I like that? Because God said that in his scriptures. Now, we are certainly elected. In Romans chapter 11, verse 5, it tells us that we are saved for this reason. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, we are chosen because of the grace of God. Remember, the grace of God is unmerited favor. He just says, I want to do it, therefore I'm going to do it, and you're going to be saved. And we go, oh, great. You know, I've often contemplated this. Why did he choose me or why did he choose any of you? And then I start thinking, what if I wasn't chosen? And I get this sense of fear, like, what would have been my destiny if I wasn't chosen? This is pretty scary stuff. But I'm so thankful that he chose me. Of course, we're chosen by his foreknowledge. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So just like Paul, who was set apart from birth, that when he came into the world, he was already destined to be saved in the eyes of God. So are we. We are predestined. It's like our name was written down. We're going to exist in the future. And, and this is why I believe nobody is a mistake in birth. I don't care if somebody is born out of wedlock. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, but God knows who is who. And they were always predestined either to be saved or not to be saved. But everybody who exists was predestined 
to exist. Now, that's a hard concept to get behind because some, you ever hear of somebody having a whoops baby? My neighbor, uh, when I was growing up, they had a whoops baby. He, he came like 10 years after everyone else and whoops. You know, it, was he a mistake? No, he wasn't a mistake. He was destined to be born and God determined that that would be the case. And so everybody that exists, we have this predestination with existence. God wants us here. Now, going on, how has this happened? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So he had this plan. And God's working out his plan. And we're not going to thwart his plan. Now that's what Satan's trying to do. That's why he tries to wipe out the Jews all the time. It's happened over and over. Tried to disperse them, get rid of them, kill them. You know, Hitler all the way back to the Assyrian uh, Empire. They, they just try to destroy their existence. And there's that same ploy today being used by Iran and the Palestinians. They just want to wipe Israel off the map and get rid of them. And they're inspired by Satan himself. But God has a plan and none of us are going to thwart that plan. He's not going to say, what am I going to do now? I have to go to the appendices and see what I have to do in lieu of this, if this is a problem. He doesn't do any of that. And he's got it all right here in his mind. Now I'm pointing to my head. Uh, He doesn't have a head like I have a head, except Christ does. But God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth. And he has a plan and it's all set. And we're not going to alter it in any way. He goes on to say in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is God, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So he calls us to be saved. Not only does he elect us, but then he comes knocking. Hello? And you get the gospel. You get the invitation. Now, some people would complain, say, well, what about the people who haven't heard? Remember Romans chapter 1 says people are without excuse because they may know that he exists through what has been made. Now, for what purpose has God elected us and called us? First Peter chapter 1 verse 1 says, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, you or who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. So we're called to be obedient and we're called to have our sins forgiven. This is in his plan. Now that's what God does in electing us. But then there is again this call. Uh, telephone, whatever it might be, he calls us. Now, it happens to different people in different ways. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, actually verse 14, it says, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In context, I should probably read verse 13, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel. So that's how he calls us. So each one of us who hears the gospel, that's our invitation. We can choose to accept it or choose to reject it. I I got up to bat on this three times. The third time I got saved. The first time when I heard the gospel, uh, and I heard it actually probably more than that, like through Billy Graham. uh, Mother and grandmother would have us watch Billy Graham. and, And I told somebody this last week, we would mock him. We'd mock Billy Graham, try to talk like a southern preacher is what we would do and we'd stand up we, we would be in our room the, that little television would be the only thing on and we'd take turns we'd stand up and and we'd perform for each other as we were listening to Billy Graham little did I know God has a sense of humor and so, so anyhow I, I heard it then I heard it at uh, Campus Crusade for Christ um, 
Uh, and a guy, Denny Schmetke, he would give the gospel and talk to us. I wasn't saved then. Then I went to a Fat Albert's retreat, and I, I listened to the gospel then, and they actually had an altar call, and I stood there stubbornly, and I would not go up the altar. I'm already a believer. I don't need to do... I believe in God. I don't have to do this. And then later on, my heart softened when I was older, and I accepted, it by, accepted Christ by listening to a message on a radio all by myself in Palm Desert. So I, I wasn't saved in any church. And afterwards, I, I had to find a church to go to. I knew that that was something that God wanted me to do. So we each have our call. And God kept on calling me. He kept on knocking. And I said, okay already, okay. And, and I finally submitted at that point. Now, maybe you're one just like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm all in, whatever. And you just dive right in and you've been going ever since. But there's a lot of people who say, okay, remember the parable of the sower of the seed? They receive the word with eagerness, and then they just fall by the wayside. They, they never keep on going. And that's not the true gospel. If somebody is saved, they're going to continue. They're going to persevere in the faith. So this calling, it is an invitation given to men by God to accept salvation in his kingdom through Jesus Christ. The invitation is given outwardly by the preaching of the gospel and inwardly by the work of the Holy Spirit. So you hear it on the outside. The Holy Spirit works inside of us. Now, he's not dwelling inside before we are believers, but he comes alongside. The word in the Greek is a paraclete. He comes alongside and walks with us, and he keeps on letting us know that we need to be saved. He communicates to us, and we can hear it almost in our heart if we just pay attention, and that's how we get saved. It is the acceptance of the offer to be saved, to live forever, to eventually be released from these cursed bodies and this cursed world. That's what the promise of the gospel is. It is good news. Now it is done by confessing Jesus as Lord, believing that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and asking Jesus to forgive us our sins. That's what the pure gospel is, the true gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 2 says, For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In my own personal testimony, I was putting it off. No, but I thought I was already saved. But then I just said, okay. And I've seen so many people where they just say, I'm not quite ready yet. Well, that might be the case. But you can let them know, today is the day of salvation. You know, if you died today, what would be the result? I remember, I did this, I went to uh, the Rolling Stones concert. I didn't go inside, I was outside at the stadium. And I was passing out with three other incognito brothers, little cards. And all we did was little business cards. And on the business card... It said, if you died today, would you be ready to see Jesus Christ? That's all it was, just a little testimony. And we'd put them on every car at, at that time, Jack Murphy Stadium. And we're, you know, stealthily going through. Is somebody going to stop us from doing this? We had hundreds of these things, putting them on the car windshields. And some guy, he starts walking out. And he's just as happy. He's singing some of the rocking songs that are in there. And he, he sees me and I go, uh-oh. And he's coming right towards me. And he goes, hey, man, what's up? And I go, oh, we're just passing out these cards. And I gave him one. And he looked at it and he goes, oh, man. He was just like went on such a downer after that because, you know, he was, not that the Rolling Stones don't have some decent songs. They have some decent songs, but all we wanted to do was share the gospel to get it out there to these guys. We're supposed to be active in doing this. And so we thought this is the, this is the best way. So we got together, we prayed about it, passed out the cards, and we went on our mission to do that. And, and that's the gospel, just accepting Christ and everything he has to offer. Now, Paul himself, his own testimony, it was a miraculous testimony. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 9, if you remember the story. In Acts chapter 9, Paul the Apostle, remember there, there was the stoning of Stephen, and he was there, and he was holding the garments of those who went to stone Stephen, and he must have had some type of guilt on the inside. But he was determined, and he was prepared to stop this new cult 
this cult of Christianity, the disciples of Jesus. And so he went to the chief priest and he got letters of recommendation. And from there, he headed off towards Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he had this special conversion, miraculous event where he's walking along or maybe riding a donkey. I don't know how he was traveling, but this light came down upon him and it was the light of God and it knocked him to the ground. And he heard Jesus Christ say to him, why are Paul, Paul, why Saul was his name? Why are you persecuting me? Is what he said. And he said at that point, Lord, you think he would have recognized at that point who the Lord was? Now he was born, some people say uh, probably around 86, which is real close to the time Jesus was born. So they are around the same age. And he would have seen Jesus in Jerusalem being who he was. He would have known him. And now he hears his voice again. He probably stood there while some of the teaching was going on in the temple court areas. And so he recognized that immediately. And he goes, get up, go into Damascus and wait there until I tell you what to do. Now, this is paraphrase Bill's version that's going on here. You can read the whole thing in chapter nine. So he goes into Damascus and for three days he's blind and he doesn't eat anything. He thought, "This, is, oh, I am in deep trouble here. And he was because he was allowing Christians to be persecuted and killed. And so at that particular point, a guy by the name of Ananias was also in the town of Damascus. And God spoke to him in a vision. He goes, I want you to go and talk to Saul. Later on, his name was changed to Paul. But he goes, I want you to go talk to Saul, and I want you to lay your hands on him so he can receive his sight. And Ananias goes, he's trying to kill the Christians. You want me to go talk to him? And he goes, yes, just go talk to him. Again, this is Bill's version. And and so he went, and he saw Saul there. He laid hands on him, and the Scripture tells us that it was like scales fell off of his eyes and he could see at that point and Ananias ministered to him and for several days he was there. It actually turned into another account in scripture to three years. He was there for three years in Damascus and after several days he went into the synagogue. It only took a few days. And he started making the case for Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And he became so effective that the Grecian Jews wanted to kill him. And they weren't able to do so. The disciples who were there lowered him through a window in the wall, down the side, and he went to Jerusalem from that point. And while he was in Jerusalem, he, he wanted to go see the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. They're like, this is the guy that's trying to kill everybody. Why would we meet with him? And finally, Barnabas came up and said, look, let's go. I'm going to take you to see Peter and the apostles. And then he did. And they accepted him, and they spent several t- uh, days together. I think it was a total of 14 days where he met Peter and, and talked to him. And remember, he received the gospel separate from the apostles, the other apostles. He was apostle himself, but it was by special revelation that God reached down and touched him. And so then he was walking through Jerusalem freely. He could walk around. He was given the gospel. He was going to the synagogues. And then again, the Grecian Jews, they wanted to kill him. And so he took off and they, they sent him all the way up to Tarsus. And he was Paul of Tarsus. That's where he ended up. And he knew that he was supposed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, just as Peter was supposed to be the apostle to the Jews. And so that is his conversion testimony. What a testimony. Wouldn't you like to receive God like that, maybe being blind for three days, knowing that for sure you were called to be saved? Do you ever have doubts about your salvation? You would have no doubt if something like that took place. You'd be able to say, oh, no, I've met him. I've talked to him. I remember seeing him and all the words that he said. And that would be a great assurance. And blessed are you who do not see and yet believe, Scripture says. So we are even more blessed than Paul because of this. Now going on, Paul provides a testimony. What happened once, he was saved to affirm that no other than Jesus, not even the apostles, provided him with a true gospel. In Galatians 1, verse 16, he says, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stay with him. Oh, it's 15 days, not 14 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. 
I assured you before God that I am writing you, or what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So Paul, and when we go into chapter 2, he continues to offer his defense for his apostleship and his authority. And how the Judaizers added nothing to the gospel that he preached. And how Peter was even influenced by these Judaizers to follow once again the Old Testament law. I just want to say... If you have people that follow the Old Testament law and they think that's required of the Christian, they are wrong. They are incorrect. They are deceived and they need to be helped to get out of that. Now, can we celebrate something like the Jewish Seder? Yeah, we can. We can do it as a looking back, which is just fine. But if you think that you have to do that, that that's a requirement in the New Testament, then we are greatly deceived. And that's what Paul is making the case against here in the book of Galatians. So to apply all this, you know, what what is our takeaway in reading about Paul and what's gone on in his life and his background? First, uh, we have to understand that this is the man who wrote a third of the New Testament and he told us how to receive salvation and by extension we should be able to explain how we came to receive Christ you you should be able to have not a lengthy novel about your testimony but you know a few paragraphs what happened how you got saved how can you refer to your past life and what was done in that and how did God set you up to get saved. And I believe God does that. I believe God sets us up to be able to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And you can look back afterwards. When you're in the midst of something, you don't really recognize it. But once you're outside of it and you look back, it becomes very clear how God uses people in your life to do that. One more thing about uh, my personal testimony. I got saved and I didn't have a church and I, I didn't know where to go. When I came back up to San Diego, because uh, I was living in Palm Springs at the time, I came back up to San Diego, and the only person I knew that might be interested in God was the uh, wrestling team that I was on, the wrestling team counselor. He had received a Bible from the coach at a small award sem- ceremony at his house. And I, it perked up my interest, like, well, why is he giving him this Bible? What's in this Bible? I want to know about this. So I contacted him, and he took me to Faith Chapel. And I went there for a little while, and it became evident I wasn't supposed to remain there uh, for certain reasons. And I, I still wasn't sure where to go, but this same wrestling coach, we were supposed to take a bike ride. Uh, we did long-distance biking, Maine to Florida. We were preparing for that. And we went to Zoom Waltz up on University Avenue. Zoom Waltz up on University Avenue is right next to the North Park Theater. We went on Sunday to the North Park Theater, Zoom Waltz, the bike shop, shop right next door. And as we drove by in his little yellow Porsche we were driving by, I looked and I saw all these people in front of the North Park Theater. And I thought, well, what's that? And it was a church, Mike McIntosh, Calvary Chapel, San Diego. And I said, oh, that's a church. And the guy with me, the coach, he said, yeah, but you don't want to go there. (laughs) Guess where I went next week? I I went there and I planted there and that's where God called me to be and the rest is history. Now, that God set me up. He put me on this bike trip to go to Zoom Waltz to get me over to Calvary Chapel, San Diego. God does that with all of us. You are not here by accident. You are here to hear the message today so that you might carry the gospel out to others, that you might become well-versed in it. And the most important thing, the Remora runner. The end of the story, I didn't tell you, was one where the strong runners that this guy would be behind this boy, they got what they called in the story a stitch in his side, and he wasn't able to run. So it was his turn to go forward and win the race 
for the team. Would you consider yourself a remora runner where you've been behind somebody your whole life in your Christian life and you're not the one that pulls out ahead and keeps on going? God calls us all to pull out ahead. Don't be behind somebody for the rest of your existence as a believer, counting on them to do everything for you. Well, I'll just take them to Pastor Bill. No, no, you answer them. You give them a reason for the hope that lies within. This is what God calls us to. We are not to be remora ministers. We're to be in front. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what is behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Now, this is not given to you by way of condemnation. Like, you're not doing enough. Just get with the program. That's not the purpose. You get to do this. How appreciative will somebody be if you actually lead them to Christ? They will be indebted to you forever, just as I was indebted to the people that I met that discipled me. Their names were Jeff and Tesley. If it wasn't for them, I don't know where I would be today. You be that person that grabs somebody by the nap of the neck, pulls them out of the fire, and disciples them, gives them instruction, let them know what they need to do to be pleasing to God or what pleases Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the encouragement that we get from this. Paul, in no way did he slow down. He was in third gear, and he put it into fourth and into fifth, and if there's a sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, he put it into those gears, and he just went as fast as he could. And that's what God is calling us to do. My encouragement to you is do not look at it as something that is a burden. Look at it as something that is a blessing. You need to bring the gospel to somebody. And if you do, it will be to the joy of heaven. uh, Scripture says that even if one person gets saved, the angels rejoice in heaven. So every time somebody accepts Christ, that's what you're accomplishing for our Savior. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that uh, is delivered to us. In Galatians here, and Paul, his steadfastness, his uh, just unwilling to move off of this true gospel, may we hold it in its purest form and deliver it as a precious gift to those whom we know. And Father, we know we can only accomplish this through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit. For if we try on our own, we will fail miserably. So we'll trust you to lead and guide. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...